This morning, we will go to the book of Romans. We will be in the book of Romans, a very special book to so many people. Down through church history, God has immensely used this book in the lives of many. And so we will be in Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. Um, you can pull out the notes from the website. I think the church website has notes that I would love for you to follow. It would be easy for you to follow and keep tracking with me as, as we go along. Um, if you have those notes, if you don't have them printed out, you can still pull them out on your cell phone and still follow along with the preaching. It will be easy for you to get the content of what I'm trying to communicate this morning. Romans as a book has been special. Throughout church history, God has used this book in the lives of many giants. Most of us, we look at people like Augustine, and we have learned a lot from Augustine. Um, and God used this book, the book of Romans, specifically chapter number 14. He used specifically chapter number 14 to bring Augustine to faith. Augustine was a very promiscuous guy. He led a very wild kind of leaving. But, you know, on the reading of Romans 14, verse 13 and verse 14, God just, the light of heaven pierced through his heart and brought him to his senses. And he repented and came to the Lord. And he was a changed man. I mean, a story is told about Augustine walking the streets. And uh, one of the ladies that he used to hang out with saw him from a distance. And he called, she called out to Augustine. Saying, Augustine, Augustine. And, you know, he, she's calling out. And, and, and she gets the sense like, you know, Augustine is trying to assume her. And she's not sure what's going on. And so she, she runs all the way to where Augustine was. And, and, and goes like, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine looks at her and responds and says, I know. But it is no longer I. And so you see the massive impact that the book of Romans had in the life of a guy. A rebellious, wild promiscuous guy like Augustine that was brought to, you know, true faith, true saving faith through the book of Romans. A guy like Martin Luther, he understood the truth of the righteousness of God, that the righteousness of God, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning, is, is a righteousness that is given by faith. And Martin Luther was brought to that conviction upon reading Romans 1 and verse 17. So this book has been immensely used in the lives of giants, Martin Luther got saved with, because of an interaction with the book of Romans. Augustine got saved because of an interaction with the book of Romans. Um, John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist Church, got saved because he was going through a Bible study where they were going through the book of Romans. And it is during that Bible study that God grabbed hold of his heart and saved him. And through the Wesleyan brothers, you know, the Wesleyan revival, and the Methodist church was born. So this is a book that God has immensely used in the lives of many. And I pray that he will use it in our lives this morning to just bring us to a conviction of things about Christ that will cause us to walk away with a fresh sense of rejoicing, that we will walk away with a fresh sense of joy because of the faith and the salvation that God provides to us. And so we will be in Romans chapter number 10. We will read from verse 1 all the way to verse number 13. Romans 10, 1 
through 13. It's a huge chunk. I hate, nowadays I hate biting huge chunks like this, but I feel like we, we need to, um, there's a few things that Paul says that bleed into those other verses that we would need to consider this morning. It says this, Romans 10, 1 through 13. It says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord Overall is reached to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Let's just bow shortly in a word of prayer. Father, we pray for grace this morning. Grace of illumination that you will illumine our minds to fully grasp the depths and the wonders of this text to the glory of your Son's name. We pray for grace, not just of illumination, but grace of obedience and cheerful obedience at that, that you will grant grace to hear your voice and walk away with an anxious desire to obey every ounce of instruction that we have had from you this morning. And so we pray that you will take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and cause us to be fashioned and shaped into the likeness of our Savior. We bless your name and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What would you think of a guy who owes you money? I mean, he owes you $20. And he comes to you, he walks to you, and he decides that he is going to pay you using Monopoly money. What would you think of a guy like that? I mean, Monopoly money over the genuine $20 bill. I have no idea whose picture is on this note. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I know know the pictures on Kenyan notes. I don't know the picture on American dollars. So there's there's a Jefferson guy here, I think. Jackson, it's Jackson, it says, it says Andrew Jackson, I think that's, that's the guy. This is what you were, this is what would have settled the debt for you. But then this guy decides he will offer you monopoly money 
to pay for the debt he owes. I mean, you would look at a guy like that and you would say, you are clinically insane. This is the height of madness. This is unacceptable. This cannot settle the debt you owe. This is not approved. In our text today, we will find Paul presenting a case like that, suggesting that there is a debt that is owed, and that the, the, the one who owes the debt is making an attempt to settle that debt with some monopoly money. And, and, and the guy who's owed that debt says, doesn't count. It won't apply. And that's what we see Paul doing in this text. He samples the nation of Israel, and he says they owe God a debt, and the debt has to be paid, and they are attempting to pay that debt. It's a spiritual debt that they owe, and they're attempting to pay that debt using monopoly money, and God says that currency is not recognized. It will not settle this transaction. That's what heaven says. That's what heaven says to Israel, and that's what God says to all of us who attempt to settle the spiritual debt we owe using human effort or human goodness. Human goodness will never impress heaven. Human goodness is monopoly money, unacceptable. God looks at that and he rubbishes that, and he says that won't count. It's unable to settle the debt. And so Paul, he points to the absurdity of Israel trying to settle their spiritual debt before Yahweh, before God, using monopoly money. And Paul says, no, I want to point you to the righteousness of God. I want to point you to the righteousness of Christ. I want to show you the real money that's acceptable for this transaction as far as heaven is concerned and your debt will be settled. I just want to remind us this morning that we were all born in debt. We were born debtors, and I'm not talking about the debt America owes China. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. You have a spiritual debt hanging on your head. There's a demand that heaven lays on you, and you must pay that. That debt must be paid. It must be settled one way or the other. And so Paul will present to us the only option, the only way through which that debt will be settled in chapter 10 of the book of Romans. I just love the way the Bible is a balanced book. The Bible is, a, is such a balanced book. Because you see in chapter 9, in this book of Romans, Paul is talking about God's sovereignty in salvation, that God is sovereign over salvation. That if you're here and you're saved, those who are saved are saved because God chose them for salvation. He chose them for salvation before the, 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 the foundations of the earth were laid. That's, that's Paul's point in chapter 9. He pushes that point. He stresses that point. And, and he, he works it marvelously. So chapter 9 of Romans is all about how God is sovereign over salvation. It's about predestination. It's about election. That those who are saved are the elect of God. They were chosen by God to be saved before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's what Paul says in chapter 9. But then he jumps to chapter 10 and he begins to address human responsibility. He says, 
If you are not saved, it's because you are responsible. If that doesn't, you know, ruffle you a bit, then, or, you know, sound confusing, then, then I don't know. Because many people have tripped over those two things over the years. Is God sovereign over salvation? Or is human being, are human beings responsible when it comes to salvation? And you guys know the answer. Yes, thank you, Laurie. The Bible teaches both. The Bible says God is sovereign, that He chooses the saved. He elects the saved. But the Bible also teaches that you are responsible. The Bible teaches both things. Where do those two things meet? I don't know. Spurgeon said, because there's someone who walked up to Spurgeon and asked him, he said, how do you reconcile the two? How, how do we bring these two? How do we make sense of these two things? Because they seem contradictory. They seem to conflict. How do you reconcile them? And Spurgeon just smiled and looked at this guy and he said, why should I reconcile two guys who have never had a falling apart? <laughs> he, says, he says these two guys are taught in Scripture and God does not pr present them as a contradiction. I don't see any need to reconcile them. I will teach them both. I will teach them both. And that's how balanced God's Word is. God's Word is just a balanced book. It's the most sensible book in the universe. It is. It's the only book that makes sense. I mean, God says, come, let us reason together. He says, let me show you logic. Let me show you reason. This is where you find true reason. This is where you find the only thing that makes sense. It's in God's holy Word. And so there is a balance that we see in the Scriptures that is just so attractive. Paul, in chapter 10, he addresses the issue of human responsibility. And he says, Israel is responsible before God. And there's a call to action. And Paul is going to compare and contrast two systems or two ways that people over the years have thought are ways that would lead to rightness with God. And so he brings us to chapter 10 and verse number 1. If you have your notes with you, the first thing that goes on your blank is, there are two words, there are two blanks there. It's camouflaged ignorance. Or you can say covered ignorance. It's camouflaged, you know, just basic everyday Language. It could be military language where you're talking about something that is trying to cover itself, to camouflage and hide. It's, it's, it's trying to, to create a facade. And that's what Paul exposes. So what Paul is going to do, he is going to debunk the self-righteousness of the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people were self-righteous. They were trying to be counted. They made human effort to be counted righteous in the eyes of a holy God through the efforts of man. They were working hard to gain merit in the eyes of a holy God so that He could grant them an embrace, forgiveness, and be reconciled with them. So there's a self-righteousness issue that, God, that Paul is dealing with here. 
And this self-righteousness, this is dangerous. Self-righteousness is horrible. Spurgeon said it is very easy to be saved from your sin, but it is very hard to be saved from right, your righteousness. Righteousness, when you think that you are right, when you have worked to make yourself right before God, then that presents a problem. So the first thing that goes on your blank is camouflaged ignorance. There was a covered ignorance, an ignorance that was covered in a very subtle, crafty way that you couldn't see it until God exposes it. So what Paul is going to do here is this. He is going to present to us four details, four details that will show you and show me why the Jewish people missed, they missed the righteousness of God. Why did they miss the righteousness of God? Paul points to four details why they did. Now, two of those details will touch on their self-righteousness, and the last two will touch on God's righteousness. There's two details on their self-righteousness and two details on God's righteousness that will show you why the Jewish people missed the righteousness of God. And so the first thing that I'm talking to us about this morning touches on the Jewish self-righteousness, that they had what we call camouflaged ignorance. Now, notice what Paul said, and that's from verse 1 all the way to verse number 4, from verse 1 to verse number 4. Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire, notice how he addresses these Gentile believers. He calls them brethren. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Romans that he calls them brethren. It's not the only time that he calls them brethren, but we take note of it because it is in our text. He addresses Gentile believers and he calls them brethren. That's an interesting Greek word. It's the word adelphoi. Now, you know the letter alpha in the Greek alphabet can play different roles. You could have a, an alpha privative. An alpha privative is like what we had in common words like agnostic. You see, there's an alpha in front of the gnosis. So, agnostic. Gnos, gnosis means knowledge. When you put the R, the alpha in front of the gnosis, then it negates. So, it has a negating effect. So it's without knowledge. To be an agnostic is to be without knowledge. To be, an, to be atheistic, atheistic is to be without God. So say there's no God to be an atheist. So that's the privative. That's the alpha privative. But there's the alpha copulative. The alpha copulative, what it does is it brings a sense of unity. And that's the one that Paul is using here when he says adelphoi. Delphas in Greek is the word for womb, womb. And R is unity, united in the womb, from the same womb. That's what Paul says. He says you are from the, we are from the same womb. He is, he is showing you how deep our bonds as believers go. We have very deep bonds. And that's something Newsom does not understand. That's why he, he doesn't understand why you and I are insisting we must meet. Why we must come together? Because we are from the same womb. We are adelphoi. We are brethren from the same womb. We are all born from above. We share very deep bonds. Bonds that will even rival biological bonds. 
We have very deep bones as believers. We are joined with divine bones from the same womb. We are born from above. We are born again people. And that's what Paul says to these guys. He says, brethren, my heart's desire. He says, my passion, my pleasure and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He says, my prayer, that, the word translated prayer there is a word for plead. He pleads with God. He pleads with God for the salvation of the Jewish people. I mean, does that reflect your prayer life? Does that reflect your prayer life? Can we say that you agonize in prayer, that you plead with God, that you beg for the souls of the lost? Because that's the impression that Paul is trying to communicate here. His prayer life is a very, very deep prayer life. So he says, my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, the word translated saved there, in the Greek language, that word is a very broad word. That's why we see preachers abusing it. Because in the Greek language, it could mean you are saved, saved from any kind of trouble, you are saved from danger, you are saved from financial trouble, somebody comes and bails you out. Yeah, it could apply to all that. And that's why preachers all over the place are playing around with that word, soterion. They're playing around with the word sozo. Because it, it's a wide, very broad term. And so they say, come to Jesus, you will be saved from your financial trouble. Come to Jesus, he will fix and repair your marriage. Come to Jesus, and they give all these promises. And, and that is not in view here. Paul is not talking about anything to do with that. In the New Testament, when the word salvation is used, it is very specific. And we know that because of what the angel announced in Matthew 1, 21. When the angel showed up, he says to Joseph, he says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their marriage issues. Is that what he says? You will call his name Jesus because he will fix your financial trouble. The angel is very specific. He says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what it says. He will say, say his people, he will sozo his people from their sins. So the agenda is very clear from the word beginning. Paul, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul narrows it down, Matthew narrows it down, and he tells you for what purpose he came. He tells you how narrow the application of salvation in the New Testament is. It is a salvation from your sin. That's the salvation that Paul is talking about here. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Then he says this, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So Paul is exposing their ignorance right there. He says they have a zeal for God. The Jewish people, very religious very enthusiastic. They have a zeal for God, but it is a zeal that does not have salvific knowledge. That's what Paul says. And you know, you look around and you see people who are very religious. Sometimes you just, it breaks my heart 
to see their zeal exceeding the zeal of the children of the truth. They're very zealous people. You talk about Mormons and their zeal riding those bikes with those badges all over the neighborhood. You talk about JWs and how zealous they are. You see their zeal. It breaks your heart. Paul bore witness. He says, I, I bear witness. I am a first-hand witness. I can testify to this in a court of law that these guys have zeal. And that's what we see even in all the false religions and all the false groupings in the world today. That's what we see. That there's, a, there's, a, there's just exceptional zeal that they have. And you go like, I wish we had zeal like that. I, I wish we served God zealously and enthusiastic like that. We children of the truth. We children that are truly saved. We who are born from above. That we would serve God zealously. That you would come here and if there's opportunity for service, you, you, are, just, you, you are just craving for it. You're talking to the pastor, to the elders, to the leaders and asking, where can I serve? I am zealous for service. That's what we see in, in false religions, unfortunately. So the Jewish religious establishment was zealous. And Paul says, I bear them witness. Why, why does Paul say that? He says, I can testify to that because this is not secondhand information I'm giving you. I witnessed it with my own eyes and I experienced it myself. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, I bear them witness. Because Paul was one of them. You remember, before Christ saved him, Paul was one of the Jews. And he will give you his credentials. I, I just, I just want, I, I, I'm trying to resist it because of time, but I cannot. I, I will take you to Philippians. Please go with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter number 3. And see what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I used to be one of you guys, and this used to be, this used to be my credentials. Let me list them for you. I, 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 I worked on these things. So Philippians chapter number 3. Very quickly, let's just go there together. Verse 4 all the way to verse number 7. Paul says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He's talking about his ethnicity. And he says, if there was things that we thought would give us credential before God is our ethnic background. So he says, my ethnicity. And then he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. No, he says, before that he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, a Hebrew um, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. When he talks about the tribe of Benjamin, he's talking about, his extraction, his ancestry. This is, this is his lineage. And there are people out there who think their lineage earns them merit before God. And Paul is saying your ethnicity counts for zero. If you think because of your ethnic background, you, you have somehow um, some head start in your relationship with God, Paul says forget it. So your ethnicity doesn't count for anything. And then he says, you're of the tribe of Benjamin, your extraction. You know, that was something to brag about in, in those days because the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that was faithful to Judah when the 12 tribes split up. 
when the kingdom of Israel split into two, it's only Benjamin that remained faithful to God's chosen tribe. Benjamin stayed with Judah. So there was something to brag about there. And Benjamin also produced Israel's first king, that, that King Saul. So there was a lineage, an ancestry, a, an extraction that he could brag about as far as they're dealing with God. But he says, my ethnicity counts for nothing. My extraction counts for nothing. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was not just a Hellenized Hebrew. He was, he was a Hebraic Hebrew. He was the true, you know, Hebrew father, mother, all the way back to Abraham. So it was like an elitist kind of a status for him. And, and your elite status counts for nothing before God. You could have gone to, we know here in America, we have the Ivy League institutions. You went to Harvard. You went to Yale. That elitist kind of a status counts for nothing before God. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul says that's nothing. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. So he was, that was bragging about his education. He was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, he was very enthusiastic. He was hardworking. We celebrate hardworking people in our society today. The culture celebrates hardworking people. And, and we, we, we lift them up. We, we used to talk about Kobe Bryant, the, one, the guy who just died earlier this year. And we said, that guy works hard in the court. He deserves the success, and the world idolized him. And Paul says he was zealous persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. His ethics. So he says all those things don't count. His ethnicity, his extraction, his ethics, his elitism, all those things don't count. And he says, but what things were gained to me, this I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. I have counted them as scubalon. I have counted them as refuse. You know, the English translators were trying to be soft on the, on, the, on the translation. Because Paul is saying, I have counted them as loss. I have counted them as scubalon. I have counted them as refuse. Waste and filth that is supposed to be fed to dogs. And you know, these are good things. These are not bad things. Paul is not listing bad things here. But we are saying good things are bad things when they keep you away from Christ. When they substitute Christ, when you think they earn you anything in the eyes of God, then Paul says that is nothing but scubalon. It's refuse. And the unfortunate thing is we have taken refuse and we have made it our refuge. Only the Lord is your salvation and your refuge. Your refuse is just nothing but refuse. So Paul lists all that and he says, I bear them witness. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he says, they are very zealous. They have the actions. They do the works. But they do not have saving knowledge. That is what Paul is saying there. That's the problem right there. That's why we are saying this camouflaged ignorance. Their works, their zeal was trying to cover up and, 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 and kind of put a, a, a facade to protect their ignorance, and Paul is exposing it. He is saying, you guys, you have all the actions, but you are devoid of saving knowledge. Now, you will notice on your notes that there's a, a few blanks there that I would like you to fill. So it says camouflaged 
um, ignorance. But then we are asking, what is this saving knowledge? What is this saving faith? Paul is saying they did not have it. They did not have saving knowledge. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. What is saving knowledge? What is salvific knowledge? And I'm saying here, salvific knowledge has three ingredients. Three ingredients for salvific knowledge. And those ingredients are noticia, number one. For you to be truly saved, you need that aspect of salvific knowledge. Noticia. Noticia has to do with the facts of salvation, the truths of salvation. They're things you must know. That's what I'm calling their complete apprehension. They're things you must apprehend. They're things you must know for you to be saved. Number one, you must know that Jesus was virgin born. If Jesus wasn't virgin born, he doesn't qualify to save you. You must know that. As a fact, just know it in your head. You must know that Jesus was human and Jesus was deity. He was human and he was divine. You must know that. You must know that Jesus died on the tree. You must know that. You must know that he gave his blood and he gave his life. You must know that. You must know that he was buried. Those are facts of salvation that you must know. So that's noticia. But knowing those facts is not enough. Knowing those facts is not enough. You must in your head affirm those facts. And that's what moves us to the next aspect of faith. A census. A census or a census means that what you have apprehended in your mind, you affirm in your mind. You say, you know what? I believe those things to be true. I don't just know them. I believe them to be true. Faith is not faith if you don't have that. You believe them to be true. But again, I want to submit to us that is not enough. Because do you know who else knows those things and he knows them to be true and he's not saved? Satan. The devil. He knows those things. He knows that Jesus was virgin born. He knows that Jesus was, uh, was sinless. He knows that Jesus is human and he's divine. He knows. And he knows that to be true. But he's not saved. Satan. And unfortunately, there's many people who come to church and they know these facts in their head and they know them to be true. But that's as far as they go. Noticia will not save you. Knowing those facts will not save you. A census will not save you. Affirming them to be true will not save you because Satan affirms them to be true. He knows that to be true. What, what is it that will save you? Fiducia will save you. So what is fiducia? Fiducia is you personally trusting and abandoning yourself to these truths. Now, fiducia will change you. I promise you, my brothers and sisters, when you come to that place where you, do, you don't just know, you have not affirmed, but you have abandoned yourself completely to these truths, then that will change you. It changes you from the inside out. And that is what Paul is saying the Jews do not have. They have not put their faith and their trust in Christ. So that's what we have there. We have complete apprehension, complete affirmation, and complete abandonment. So Paul says, 
He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. That's verse number four. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I was trying to see how, how do I best explain, how do I best explain that verse? And I said the best analogy that I can come up with is a medical analogy, and I will leave it at that. It's a medical analogy. There's Dr. Law, and there's Dr. Grace, and Dr. Law comes to you. He is a diagnostic doctor. The only thing he can do is diagnose. He comes to you, and he says you are very sick. Your head is sick. Your whole body is filled with putrefying sores. You are very sick. And he says this sickness that you have is a chronic sickness and it's a, it's a terminal sickness. It will kill you. He diagnoses it and you say, Dr. Law, can you prescribe something? Can you help me? And he says, I'm helpless. I cannot help you. But then there's the Dr. Grace right here. And Dr. Grace is not a diagnostic doctor. He's a therapeutic doctor. He's a curative doctor. So Dr. Grace, his job is to come and overhaul and overturn and overthrow your sickness, your spiritual disease. And he brings healing to your soul and he brings forgiveness and salvation to you. That's what Christ is represented here as. So Christ is the end of the law. He's the tellers of the law. He's not, just, he's not just the aim because the law points us to Christ. He's not just the fulfillment because Christ fulfilled the law. He is the termination of the law. Paul presents two systems and he says this system has been overthrown and only Christ can give the righteousness that you and I need before God. So we see the first thing that we see is the camouflage ignorance. Paul is hitting hard on the Jews and he is debunking their self-righteousness. He's saying your self-righteousness is based on ignorance that is covered and camouflaged. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is I want to show you that the complete inability of your self-righteousness. That's number two. If you're filling your notes, point number two is complete in ability, verse 5 through verse 8, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ from, from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what, do, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Paul is saying this. He wants the Jewish people to see their complete inability. He says, the word of faith in verse number 6, he says, um, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. He says, when, when your righteousness, your right standing before God is born out of faith in Christ, you do not have to go. He says, you, for, for you and me, to be counted right before God, we need a perfect sacrifice. Where can the perfect sacrifice be found? We cannot find a perfect sacrifice here on earth. So where do we have to look? In heaven. That's the only, way, that's the only place where perfection is. That's the only place that Christ is. So Christ, as a perfect sacrifice, must come. Now Paul is saying 
The righteousness of faith says to you, don't worry about that. Why? Because you believe he already came. But if you are struggling to to be self-righteous before God, you must go to heaven and bring him down because you need a holy sacrifice. You need a perfect sacrifice. Paul is showing you how the complete inability of self-righteousness to justify before God. He says you cannot ascend to heaven to bring Christ down. He says you, you, these two doctrines, verse 6 and verse 7, says the incarnation must be included for salvation. And the resurrection must be included for salvation. So how will you pull these things? Uh, I mean, how will you bring these things about if you're trying to justify yourself before God through your efforts? How do you ascend to heaven to pull Christ down? How far has man gone? I think we've gone to the moon and back. I mean, how, how, how do you ascend to heaven? Paul is showing you the complete inability of self-righteousness to justify before God. It is impossible. I want you to know that. You who is here and you think that something that you do will earn you merit before God. You are wasting your time. It's a total waste of time. It's only the righteousness of faith in verse 6 and verse 7 that Paul says, Christ, we believe in the incarnation, that the perfect sacrifice came and he was born in the flesh. And we believe that he died, and we believe that he was buried, and we believe that he rose from the dead. So Paul is saying, please see it. Israel, see it. You are completely unable, complete inability to be justified using your self-righteousness. So these are two things that made the Jewish people trip when it came to them being justified or receiving the righteousness of, the righteousness of God. But then I have two more points as, as we wind up very quickly. Paul has debunked the righteousness that the Jewish people were trying to offer God through their efforts, through their, the, the works of the flesh. Right now, he's going to talk to them about God's righteousness and things about God's righteousness that the Jewish people tripped over. They, they rejected these things. And Paul is going to show them that this is the only way that you can be justified and you can be righteous before a holy God. So the third point is confession implication. Paul is going to show them that for you to be clothed in the righteousness of God, there's a confession you must make. And this confession is what caused the Jewish people to stumble. Because Paul is going to ask them, look at what verse number 9 and 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul is going to say that there's a confession you must make, and this confession is confessing that Jesus is Lord. That's the biggest stumbling block to a Jewish person as far as the gospel is concerned. Because you're asking them to confess that Jesus is Lord, a crucified Messiah for them was a stumbling block. That's what Paul says. Paul says the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews it is a stumbling block. Because they were looking for a conquering Messiah. But Paul is offering them a crucified Messiah. 
And he's telling the Jewish people, you must confess that he is Lord. And that was one of their biggest stumbling blocks. They looked for a Messiah who would come and help them conquer their enemies, a military Messiah, a Messiah who would come and set up an earthly kingdom. They had the second advent of Christ and the first advent of Christ all mixed up. And Paul says, I present to you a crucified Messiah, and you must confess that he is Lord. And they tripped over that. The implication of that confession made them trip. And that's what I'm saying to us this morning. That for you to be saved, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. The same crucified Messiah that Paul was offering to the Jews is the same crucified Messiah that I offer to you this morning. And I am saying He is your only remedy. That is the divine gift for the remission of sins that heaven has provided. Your only remedy is a crucified Messiah the crucified Christ, I offer him to you. There are people to this day who stumble over him just like the Jews did. There are people to this day who consider him foolishness just like the Greeks did. But I am here to say to you, the foolishness of God is what man considers wisdom. And the wisdom of God is what man considers foolishness. This is the wisdom of God, to offer you forgiveness through a crucified Christ. The Jews stumbled over that. They tripped over it. And Paul is saying that's the only way for you to receive righteousness. He says, you believe unto righteousness and you confess unto salvation. Just synonymous of the same act. He's saying this is an inward action. You believe in your heart and you're counted right before God and you confess with your mouth. It's an outward uh, expression of the inward reality. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We confess the Lordship of Christ. That's why we live the way we do. When we invite you to salvation, we are inviting you to a Lordship um, engagement. So we've said it again, and we will repeat and say it again. That it's a false fallacy. It's, it's, a, it's a fallacy. It's, it's, a, it's a false dichotomy. When people say, I know Jesus as my Savior, but I do not, I'm getting to know Him as my Lord. You get saved when He invites you to confess His Lordship. Confess Jesus as Lord. So that's what we see. We see an implication, a confession implication that caused them to stumble. The last thing that Paul talks about that made Jews over the years trip is a comprehensive inclusion. Comprehensive Inclusion. So there was confession implication and there's comprehensive inclusion. That's verse 11 all the way to verse number 13. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on, the, on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is reached to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul says this salvation is very comprehensive in its target. That God is targeting all nations. And that made the Jewish people trip. The Jewish religious establishment was full of Jonahs. You remember Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah, God says, you will go to Nineveh and you will warn the Assyrians. And you will tell them that if they do not repent in 40 days, I will destroy them. And Jonah says that serves them right. Those are pagans, heathen people. 
and they persecuted the people of God, they should be condemned, they should die. And he had no heart for the other nations. And many Jewish people of that day were similar. That they thought they could, they could monopolize the righteousness of God. That it just belonged to them. And Paul is showing them. Paul is saying, listen, this thing is wider than you are making it to be. And you guys are tripping over this. You're missing it. You're missing the wideness of God's righteousness. And so he, he presents a case for comprehensive inclusion. And he says this righteousness is being extended to all nations. That's the righteousness that we are talking about this morning. A righteousness that targets all. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to echo those words, the words of the Apostle Paul to us this morning, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You are here this morning, and I want to remind you, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this verse is for you. This scripture is for you. And the Bible is beckoning you. The Bible is inviting you. It's calling you to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Because you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. Who do you need to be rescued from? You need to be saved not from Satan. Because that's the misconception many people have. You think you're being saved from Satan. You're not being saved from Satan. God is saving you from himself. God is saving you from himself. Because you, the jury of heaven, the tribunal of heaven, made up of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, has passed a judgment on your soul. And heaven has pronounced you guilty. And the only way that sentence can be wavered, the only way that sentence can be lifted, the only way that you can escape that judgment, I'm saying to you today, is what Paul says here. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of Christ shall be saved. The only way for you to escape the judgment and the sentence that has been passed on you by the tribunal of heaven is to call on the name of Christ. That you will beat yourself on your chest and say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. I put my faith in the crucified Christ. And then watch as the light of heaven pierces your heart and brings you salvation. That you will have the forgiveness of sin and you will be reconciled to God. That's the comprehensive inclusion we are talking about. That this message is meant for the rich. It's meant for the poor. It's meant for the white. It's meant for the brown. It's meant for the black. It's meant for the tall ones and the short ones. It's meant for all. It's meant for those who went to Harvard and those who never made it to Harvard. It's meant for those who went to Yale and those who never made it to Yale. It's meant for those who are educated and those who are not. There's a comprehensive inclusion when the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's you. You who is here and you have never given your life to Christ, that is you. Call on the name of the Lord today. Because the Bible says here, as I finish, it says here that... Um, 
in verse number 8, that the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. And you're asking yourself, how is the word in my mouth? How is the word in my heart? And I am saying through my preaching this morning, and through all the preaching that you have had in your life, the word is in your heart and in your mouth. What do you do with what is in your heart? The Bible says you believe it. What do you do with what is in your mouth? You confess it. That's what the Bible says. That the preaching of God's word has put his gospel in your heart. What do you do with it? Believe it. It has put his gospel in your mouth. What do you do with it? You confess it. The word is very near you. You don't have to pull stunts like rising to heaven to bring Christ down or descending to the abyss to raise him from the dead because he came, he died, he rose, and he's alive near you today for you to believe him in your heart and for you to confess him with your mouth. That's the only currency that will make you righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Anything other than that is monopoly money, unacceptable the only currency that heaven recognizes is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And that's the theme of the book of Romans. Christ's righteousness. The righteousness of God in Christ. Consider these four points and see how Paul deconstructs self-righteousness. And you have nothing else to cling on to but Jesus and him alone. And you will sing with a hymn writer and you will say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And you will rejoice over the salvation that heaven provides for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and how that you rescued him from self-righteousness. And we thank you for your word that is with us even to this day. That because of your word, we can find salvation and we can find righteousness in Christ. And so we pray that we will, by your grace, respond to the righteousness that we have in Christ. Rejoicing over it and announcing it to all, to the byways and the freeways. And we will tell them, come and receive what heaven has made available. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.